Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. First and foremost is investing in local communities to develop their own responses, develop their own solutions. What's really concerning at the moment is Something like 15% of the child protection investment in New South Wales is directed to family supports, according to the report on government services, which means that 85% of that funding is invested elsewhere. Caring for kids, funding cuts threaten the viability of the peak community-controlled child protection service in New South Wales. And the Queensland government urged to acknowledge the traditional adoption practices of the Torres Strait in state law essentially it relates to the permanent adoption of children in that a family will give a child to what we call a receiving family and the child is always given to somebody to whom they have a blood relationship. So the bloodline is a very important part of that underlying adoption that occurs. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Challenging historical narratives, the recent Black Lives Matter campaign in Australia this week turned to the protection of our national heritage. Whether it's the desecration of statues or the destruction of significant cultural sites dating back tens of thousands of years, the resulting debate has fuelled calls for a thorough process of truth-telling. Joining me to discuss the big issues of the past weeks are Professor of Indigenous Workforce Diversity at the Jambana Institute, Noreen Young, and Industry Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jambana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. Lyndon, how did you react when you first saw the images of the death of George Floyd? I reacted with horror and dismay, like most people. But there was, I guess, a part of me that wasn't surprised, a part of me that was a bit jaded about that, and we should never be feeling that way about those types of images. I've only watched a few seconds of different parts of that video. I just couldn't watch that all the way through. It brought up a lot of personal trauma for me, having worked in an area where there has been police violence against Aboriginal people, where there have been Aboriginal deaths in custody, hearing and seeing those videos repeatedly just made it very hard. It was just a a horrifying thing to watch. But the fact that it was filmed and it obviously struck home to so many people, we're now having the sort of serious conversations that I think we've been needing to have for a long time. Noreen, has the size of the protests in Australia surprised you? Yes and no. I think that there's clearly a lot of people who were upset about the George Floyd incident, as we all were, as any human of any decency was, despite the fact that we're all a bit desensitised about what happens to African-American men. So I think that there are clearly a lot of people of goodwill who were both affected by it, but reminded as campaigners did so very well so quickly, of what happens to Aboriginal people in Australia and around Aboriginal deaths in custody. As I think it was Amy Maguire said on the drum, the Aboriginal leadership and Aboriginal people have never let this go. And I think that it reminded people, and, and there's clearly a lot of people of goodwill who are very supportive. Linda, this has been an extraordinary moment of mobilisation 
Do you think significant change is possible to flow from this? I am both cynical and optimistic. I don't think we've had, certainly in recent times, the depth of discussion around these issues and certainly the energy being brought by people all over the country through protests and for people campaigning for change. I would hope that we're able to seize a moment here because we have to disrupt this. People are sort of getting diverted into statues and boycotting certain products, but we need to remain focused on what the very real and serious issues are here, and that is Aboriginal people dying in custody, Aboriginal people being targeted by police, and the movement around defunding the police and what that might look like is now a very real conversation Only a month ago, people would laugh at you and call you crazy for even raising it, whereas now people are starting to actually think what that looks like. Noreen, as Lyndon points out, there are a range of reform issues when we talk about preventing deaths in custody, but there has been a specific focus on the relationship between police and the Aboriginal community. From your perspective, how can trust be rebuilt in that relationship? That's why I think the defunding the police issue is really interesting because my perspective is that it's so endemic that that can't happen, that trust can never be rebuilt with things as they are. And the incidents of the last couple of days in South Australia have really heightened that, that police are so lacking in awareness as to the times they're working in that they would proceed with what they have Right now, it's just extraordinary that that young Aboriginal man would have that treatment at this point in time. So I don't know that it is able to be not recast but cast because it's never been good, obviously. And I think that a real rethink along the lines of defunding the police needs to happen. Lyndon, when people talk about defunding the police What do they actually mean? Because obviously it's been a very strong slogan as part of the protest movement, but what's actually involved in that? Because it's not just blanketly not funding a police force, is it? No, it's not a call to go to the Thunderdome, Mad Max type of world. It's actually something that the police themselves have been asking for for a very long time. It's about allocating resources to deal with mental health, allocating significant resources for housing, for social programs, and what it's about is preventing the need for a police force. Numerous studies have shown that the predominant factor in rates of crime is the economy. And when the economy is going well, rates of crime are down. And you can extrapolate out from that then the general health and well-being of a society and its citizens and the propensity to be engaged in crime from there. And so if we're able to get those things right, and we've seen some ridiculous figures in the United States, I think the LAPD has around a $3 billion budget, dozens of times higher than its social housing budget. Those are the types of discussions we are interested in that Aboriginal people have been having for a very long time. The police are a very brutal solution to societal problems. So what we would rather do is create a better society in which police aren't that necessary. 
There have been, as you've both pointed out, a lot of conversations raised by the events of the past couple of weeks around the Black Lives Matter movement. At a recent Black Lives Matter protest, mounted police were seen to be guarding a statue of Captain James Cook in Sydney's Hyde Park, which has ignited a debate around the presence of colonial monuments. Noreen, what did you make of the scenes? Uh, The police reacting in a way that was symbolic of what the real problems are, that the most important thing in dealing with a democratic protest of ordinary citizens was guarding the colonial symbol. To me, that's really problematic. I don't know that it is the best use of energy to be dealing with the statues, but it's inevitable. And the colonial narrative is just so strong. I've just spent the last couple of days in the Blue Mountains and the entire narrative of that place is one of the invader when you really start examining every single thing in terms of historical places, historical symbols, place names, how this society in in New South Wales is constructed and the police's central role in that, really it's no wonder that the colonial symbols like statues are being challenged. Lyndon, from your perspective, what is the sort of truth-telling exercise that needs to take place that is really, in a way, being raised by the images that we saw of police protecting a statue of Captain Cook? I think it's absolutely imperative. And again, this is a moment of disruption that hopefully leads to more considered discussions around this. I mean, most of those things, I think most people, if those statues disappeared, would hardly notice. But I think they are a bit of a lightning rod for truth-telling discussion. So we've heard some things around places and sites that are named after colonialists that were known to be engaged in massacres of Aboriginal people. And those are the discussions that I'm really interested in and that people should come to. I'm not about just removing things because I think that there is a discussion to be had And it's the process by which those things may be removed one day down the track that is really important. We've talked about the need for truth, truth telling, and we've had some really significant developments around that recently, both through this process and through some work that has also been done on massacres that have happened throughout the country. So the light is being shone on these areas, and I would like for the conversation to be focused around what those statues stood for rather than whether they should be there or anywhere else. Noreen, the debate comes shortly after the destruction of several significant Aboriginal cultural sites dating back tens of thousands of years. How do you view the disparity in what we're valuing in terms of cultural heritage? Well, to me, the destruction of those sites is symbolic of the nation that we live in and the way it views itself in that the Aboriginal heritage is dismissed, but the colonial narrative is coveted. So I think that it's absolutely tragic, but it symbolises to me how Aboriginal heritage is viewed by this state. And Lyndon, what were your thoughts on that, the disparity between the attempts to protect statues as opposed to the destruction of significant rock art sites? It made me angry. It's incredibly frustrating it's tiresome. Aboriginal sites are seen as inconveniences 
and we've seen that in terms of mining operations, other developments. Those are just things that you get a certificate for and continue on your way. And I don't know how to resolve that at this point because the value that is placed in statues that can be replaced almost overnight to places that have tens of thousands of years of heritage, of stories, of significance, of experience. I unfortunately don't have the answer to that. But again, I'm really interested in maintaining those conversations and saving that heritage that is so important for Aboriginal people. And as Aboriginal people have been saying this week, it is Australia's heritage. It's everyone's. So hopefully some of those messages might start getting through as well. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barron and my guests tonight are Noreen Young and Lyndon Coombs. Prime Minister Scott Morrison was forced to issue an apology this past week after claiming there was no history of slavery in Australia. Noreen, what did you make of the comments and the timing of them? At the time, I think those things come like a bolt out of the blue and you don't, well, I didn't necessarily think through at the time that it could have been quite a strategic thing to have said to make people angry. At the time, I thought it was stunningly ignorant and it really concerned me that a person who is the king policymaker of this country didn't understand either the slave trade and what impact that has had in terms of how South Sea Islander people got here, but also the preceding slave trade around Malay people, etc., but that most significantly, given the focus on Indigenous policy, he didn't understand the impact of indentured labour and stolen wages and exclusion from the labour and employment markets of Aboriginal people and how that's impacted on inherited wealth or lack of inherited wealth now. However, having had a week, the week to look at it In perspective, I think it was a deliberate kind of tactic to make us all be outraged. And I think that that is a tactic of this government and we all need to be really aware of it. Lyndon, how did you view the Prime Minister's comments and in light of the calls that you've emphasised for a need for a truth-telling process? Again, it was predictable. It fits the broader narrative. I think most Australians, if you ask them, would say, There was no slavery here. Bad things happened, but it was worse in the United States. And we don't have a prime minister who wants people to think too hard or too deeply about these things. So whether he knew or not, that response from him was entirely predictable. I think there was a comment earlier that he said, we're not like the United States, intimating that things are worse there. In some ways, yes, but we have a higher incarceration rate for Indigenous people in this country than African-Americans do in the States. So we're not like America. In some cases, we're worse. And that's a discussion that we'll be having, and I don't expect it will be led by the Prime Minister. The Insiders, one of the ABC's flagship political programs, has come under scrutiny for a lack of diversity, with allegations that the program has not featured a person of colour on its panel for over a decade and possibly never. The backlash came after an episode in which an all-white panel were discussing the Black Lives Matter protests, both in Australia and overseas. In fairness, the subsequent week they did have on Aboriginal journalist Bridget Brennan to make up for that. But Lyndon, from your perspective, why 
why is it so important to have a diversity of thought on panels like those on the insiders? It just makes for a better program, really. It canvases people who've had different experiences, people who probably aren't career or professional journalists who are able to bring a bit of real-life perspective there. And to me, it changes the conversation. I just know that by having Aboriginal people in the room changes the nature of the conversation, that people are more aware, they'll think more deeply, And when Aboriginal people speak in those situations, hopefully they're being heard. So just the presence there for Indigenous people to feel that they are represented on the screens is a really important thing as well. The other thing to that is that Aboriginal people have views on a whole range of things that that are not specifically Aboriginal. I've always been frustrated that the lens of Aboriginality is put over everything and that we're compartmentalised in terms of the things that we can talk about, the things that we might have any authority on, and the things that are for the rest of society. So having Indigenous people on talking about the economy, talking about jobs, talking about the state of politics and accountability is a really important thing. And we've got lots of expertise in that. There's no excuses and no reasons not to have very talented Aboriginal voices. Noreen, I'm interested particularly in your expertise as somebody who works in workforce diversity. One of the explanations given for the lack of diversity on the insiders to date has been that there are no Indigenous people working in the press gallery. And I wondered what your reaction was to that explanation and what it says more broadly about the employment of Indigenous people. Well, the simple answer is we'll find them, and it always is, to diversity issues. What it speaks to is the nature of who it's perceived the insiders are and why hasn't there been any Indigenous journalists who've been hired in the press gallery in Canberra? Who makes those decisions? Who makes those hiring decisions? Who makes the judgments as to who it's perceived the insiders are? So from a workforce diversity issue perspective, it's appalling and there just needs to be some hired. Now, putting Bridget on was a fantastic start and I thought she was absolutely brilliant. But a comment was made on Twitter about the weight that that puts on, whether it's Bridget or another Indigenous journalist, the expectation that that person will speak for everyone. And as Lyndon said, the expectation that they will only speak on what is perceived to be Aboriginal issues and aren't respected as the well-rounded, well-educated, well-informed people that they are who have the capacity to speak and have thoughts on the range of issues. I was going to actually ask you about that because you have appeared on the drum where you've spoken on a range of issues and I was wondering what it feels like to have the spotlight on you and and in a way be in a similar way in Bridget's position of people being able to say, well, actually we've ticked that box because we've had Noreen on. Well, and that really irritates me because I don't speak for Aboriginal people. I tread very lightly and very carefully around that. My background is very mixed and it's very diverse and I don't speak for Aboriginal people and I actually resent the inference. So everyone's different. Some people, and clearly should, speak on behalf of Aboriginal people, but I hate that assumption being made about anyone or any assumption being made really 
about anyone. And I, so I really try to emphasize, and I say privately to the drum, I'm an employment policy person. That's what I am, and that's what I want to speak on, and that's what I want to be asked about. Well, thank you both for being with us this evening and talking through what were actually some very difficult subjects, but reflected the very difficult times I think many Aboriginal people felt they were going through over the last couple of weeks. My guests this evening have been Professor of Indigenous Workforce Diversity, Noreen Young, and Professor of Indigenous Policy, Lyndon Coombs. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app, and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The peak body for Aboriginal child protection in New South Wales, ABSEC, is set to lose half of its annual funding. The decision comes despite a sharp increase in the number of Indigenous children placed into out-of-home care. So what impact will these cuts have on a system already struggling to cope? That's up next, but right now some music. Late last month, Torres Strait Islander musician Chris Tamoy released his debut single, Kulbayade, an acoustic duet with Christine Anu. Originally recorded by Christine, the title of the song means Old Talk. Yeah, 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 yeah
That was Chris Tamoy's debut single, Call Bayade, featuring Christine Arnu and available through ABC Music. Chris has been recording and releasing music ahead of his debut album, Reality, due out later this year. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. Despite a series of recommendations, reports and policy implementations, the number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in New South Wales continues to rise. Currently, Aboriginal children make up over 40% of those in the system. Yet despite this obvious over-representation, the peak body for Aboriginal child protection in New South Wales, ABSEC, is set to lose half of its annual funding next financial year. Paul Gray is an Associate Professor at the Jumbana Institute, overseeing child protection research and policy. Before that, he served as Executive Leader of Strategy, Policy and Engagement at ABSEC for a number of years. Paul, welcome to Speaking Out. Hi, Larissa. Thanks for having me. And I understand that you're here in your capacity as the Associate Professor at Jumbana, not speaking on behalf of ABSEC. But I wondered if before we could get into the issues around that funding decision, if you could tell us where you grew up and what your influences are. Sure. So I'm a Wiradjuri man. Uh, My family and community uh, is in central New South Wales in the Dubbo area, Peak Hill area. But I grew up in southwestern Sydney on Tharawal country, where my family moved following World War II, actually. So we've been there for a little while. I suppose my, my greatest influences growing up were my family and local community, where my family was quite active in the local community. And they really provided me and my brothers a, a strong foundation to think about the contribution we, we can make to our communities, the importance of education, My generation, we were the first in our families to go to university, which I know is an experience for many Aboriginal families. And so that was something that was really strongly instilled in us from our families, uh, that importance of getting a, a, a good education and then using that to improve the circumstances for our communities. So what drew you into work in the area of child protection? When I started at university, like a lot of people starting uni, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go, but I had a real interest in trying to understand people. And so I found myself studying psychology. Around the same time that being the youngest and we moved out to go to university, my parents started caring for young people through the child protection system. And that was a real eye opener for me, you know, being very close to my family and seeing the experiences that those young people were going through at that time really opened my eyes to some of the issues in the system. And then an opportunity came up for me to join the Department of Community Services on a cadetship. So I grabbed that with both hands and I've been in child protection ever since. For those who aren't aware, what's the role of ABSEC and other bodies like that when it comes to Aboriginal child protection? So peak bodies are really important and representative peak bodies like ABSEC provide a a really important voice at the systems level when it comes to how the statutory child protection system affects Aboriginal families and communities. So they're able to support and represent the voices of local Aboriginal organisations, local Aboriginal communities in how the current systems are affecting Aboriginal children. They also do a lot of important work. I mean, New South Wales is a very big state, 
and we know that the distribution of services is not equal. So there are huge gaps in the service system, particularly in regional and remote areas. And part of ABSEC's important work is helping communities to build capacity in those areas and develop the sorts of early intervention services and other services that are needed so that Aboriginal children and young people and their families that need support are able to access it in their local community and from local community providers. You've labelled the decision to cut funding to ABSEC as a worrying sign for Aboriginal children and families in New South Wales. What concerns you most? I think my biggest concern in terms of this is what it indicates in terms of the direction of the sector. So we've had a few experiences and examples lately where we've seen that the voices of Aboriginal people are not being considered or taken into account when it comes to significant reforms or changes. And I think the concern here is that reductions to uh, the effective funding of a peak body like ABSEC is just further continuing that, uh, that diminishing of the important voice of Aboriginal people in a system that disproportionately affects us and our children. So I think sort of that's the main concern for me. Over the last two or three years, we've seen legislative changes that went through with very limited engagement with Aboriginal people. We've seen the Families Culture Review, probably the most significant recent review of Aboriginal children in, in the out-of-home care system for a generation. That review came out in November 2019, and there's been really limited engagement with Aboriginal voices, Aboriginal communities, and their representative bodies about what we do as a system in responding to those recommendations. So I'm just concerned that this is an indicator that what we're going to see is a, a diminishing the voice of Aboriginal people when it's as important as ever. The number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in New South Wales sits at around 40%. From your perspective, what are the contributing factors behind this overrepresentation? Well, this is one of the things that the Families Culture Report tackled specifically. And what they pointed to, what Professor Megan Davis pointed to in that report, is just the lack of early intervention supports, the lack of culturally based services that are effective in meeting the needs of Aboriginal families and communities, a particular lack of effective responses for prenatal reports, where instead of offering planned out and considered responses, we tend to see Aboriginal children being removed from birthing suites and hospitals. So there's the front end, how do we do early intervention better and work better with families to prevent children coming into care? So there's the lack of early intervention supports that are really important. And just all of the different elements that sit under the reasons that families come in contact with the child protection system. We know that involvement in the child protection system is disproportionately from lower socioeconomic families. They're families that are already vulnerable. They're families that are struggling with mental health, with addiction, with all of the kind of consequences of intergenerational trauma. And rather than offering the supports that are needed to address those things, we seem to have this response of going in and taking children away. And all that does is perpetuates this kind of cycle of removal and, and of trauma rather than trying to really stop it and find a different way that's going to be more sustainable in the long term. With your considerable experience in this space, in your view, what would be the most effective strategies to address the continuing trend of increased removal of Aboriginal children and start reversing that? So I think 
investment in early intervention is really important. But it's really important too that we don't just invest in any family support. We know that a key cornerstone of effective policy for Aboriginal communities, and particularly in the child and family space, is this idea of self-determination, of Aboriginal peoples working out what's going to work best for them. And we know that works best because they know their local circumstances, they know their communities, and they know they're able to shape their own aspirations and priorities if they're empowered to design these programs themselves. So I think first and foremost is investing in local communities to develop their own responses, develop their own solutions, and to build around that a really rigorous data system that allows communities to understand what are the impacts that their interventions are having so that they're able to make better decisions year on year about how things are going and what else they need to do to make those things better. You know, what's really concerning at the moment is something like 15% of the child protection investment in New South Wales is directed to family supports, according to the report on government services, which means that 85% of that funding is invested elsewhere. I'd really like to see that shift so that we're investing far more in the sorts of things that will prevent kids being harmed first and foremost, but also in responding more effectively and, and helping families meet the needs of their children and young people so that they don't have to fall into these systems. From your perspective, having watched this space, what are the barriers that prevent governments from going down this track and and implementing some of these recommendations that are coming from the sector, from reports, and seem to be based in common sense? Well, I think a big part of it is kind of the legacy issue, if you know what I mean. We have thousands of Aboriginal children, thousands of children generally, in the out-of-home care system. And I don't think anyone is suggesting that we reduce the support to them. So what this will need is a a surge in funding in order to provide the level of intervention that's needed to bring down that initial entries into care so that we can start reinvesting money in the back end. So we know that there's that kind of how do we balance these things issue. And, you know, there has been a lot of conversation in the New South Wales jurisdiction about how we do that. I think the other challenge for Aboriginal communities particularly is, and this was picked up in the Families Cultural Report, is that there's still a a very deep sense of historic continuity between past policies and kind of those protectionist era policies and what we see in current practice. And in a way, we see that in in the responses to the legislative changes and now to the family as culture review, where governments see this as a problem that governments have to solve, rather than recognising that Aboriginal communities are the ones who have the solutions to these issues and working in genuine partnership with communities to solve them. So I think that kind of conceptual piece of recognising that Aboriginal communities are best placed to solve these problems remains a real sticking point in moving towards the sorts of solutions that we need to see. I wanted to just pick up on something that's obviously a recurring theme in terms of solutions in what you're saying, and that is this concept of self-determination. I was wondering if you could maybe articulate that in terms of how you see that as a concept that should be guiding this space and why that's so important. Sure. And self-determination was one of the key recommendations that was made in bringing them home more than 20 years ago. So it's a bit disappointing, I suppose, to still be talking about what it could mean in the child protection space. 
But in bringing them home, it described it as Aboriginal decision-making, so community decision-making being carried through to implementation. It's really that simple. And they even said that government should sort of limit their role to providing the resources and the other supports that communities need to design and administer their own responses to these things. And so I think that's a really simple way of thinking about it and understanding that it's about communities having a real voice in the systems and the policies that affect them and being able to meaningfully shape those on the ground so that they meet local needs and are best suited to meeting the needs of their families. The statistics in this space are overwhelming and obviously behind that 40% of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care are the stories of children and families. So it's actually a, a very difficult space to be working in. But I was wondering if you could talk about where you get your optimism from, because you're clearly working on the belief that you can change this. And I was wondering what it is that gives you hope that things will be different in the future. That's a really good question, particularly as I suppose, as we look backwards as well, we don't see a lot of change and that really meaningful systemic change. We see a lot of shuffling of policies. We see a lot of shifts in rhetoric. But at the bottom line, the most basic level, we haven't really seen huge changes. And I suppose the optimism is can, can be really challenging at times. But I think, too, you know, this is part of the ongoing struggle, I guess, for our families and our communities. So I don't know that it's a, a sense of optimism per se, but just an obligation that I feel that I have in my community because this is the area that I work And it's that obligation that we're not a community that's going to give up on our children and young people. We never have and we never will. I don't know if it's so much a sense of optimism for change, but just that we will always be here pushing for the change that we need to see and trying to stand up for our children and young people because that's what we have to do. One of the things I'm always interested in when I have people on the show, Indigenous experts who are working at the front line on issues as difficult as this, is how they keep their resilience, how they keep working day after day in an area that it's incredibly emotionally draining. And I was wondering if you could share with us how you keep your resilience when you do such hard work at the coalface. For me, it goes back to what I was saying at the start. It's about family. I'm very close to my family and they play a big role in keeping me on track and promoting my well-being when things are, are not going so well in the space or, or when I'm working with a particularly difficult or, or heartbreaking case. And unfortunately, there's too many of those. You know, it's all those things that our communities talk about. It's feeling safe to talk about these things with trusted people in our lives so that we're not just holding them all in. I think too, on the weekend, uh, went out to my family's place and went down the back and just got out into the bush and we actually started cutting some coolamons and things like that. So just going back to the simple things and the things that matter. And it really reminds us why we're here and why we do what we do. I remember working with a practitioner once and they, they saw the idea of vicarious trauma being more about the frustration of a system that doesn't seem to care rather than being an effect of the stories that we come across. And I think that's really true. It's not so much the stories that affect me, 
It's that when those problems are raised, how difficult it is to get them resolved. That's the part that I think really wears Aboriginal advocates down because, you know, we hear a lot of talk about the importance of culture, the importance of keeping families connected, the importance of removals only as a last resort. And yet, as anyone who's looked at the Family as Culture Review will know, that's just not what we see in practice. And, and it's the unwillingness to change that that I think is the most challenging. And so having other like-minded people who support that advocacy is really important to the resilience and to feeling like we can keep getting up and doing this each day. Well, Paul, thank you so much for dropping by speaking out this evening and sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Larissa. Um, and I hope everyone has a good evening. Paul Gray is an Associate Professor at the Jambana Institute where he oversees the research and policy on First Nations child protection. This is Speaking Out, a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs show produced and presented by Indigenous broadcasters on ABC Radio. Indigenous childcare agencies have long argued for the need for children in out-of-home care to retain cultural connections and support. Growing up strong in culture is widely recognised as an essential aspect of healthy development for Indigenous children. In-community adoption practices play a key role in cultural traditions in many of the islands of the Torres Strait. At the last election, the Queensland Government pledged to formally recognise the tradition under state law during the current term. But with the election looming in October, community representatives are concerned the issue has fallen by the wayside. To discuss this further, I'm joined this evening by Senior Lecturer at the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Sciences at Griffith University, Dr Heron Loban. Dr Loban, welcome to the program. Thank you. Can you just tell us before we get into the issues, where did you grow up? So I was born on Thursday Island in the Torres Strait, locals call it TI, and my family connections are to the western islands of the Torres Strait, so Mabiag Island and Boigu Island. And after that, I grew up a little bit in Cairns and then eventually in Brisbane, where I ended up going to university and studying law, as it turned out. And can you tell us about how you decided to go and study at university and then what's led you to do the work and research that you're doing now? Yeah, well, I remember growing up in Brisbane, doing my high school here, and my dad was always very much about, as Torres Strait Islander people, even though we're living away from the community, you know, if we go to university, if we get through high school, we've got an obligation to go back and to give back to our community. And that's, you know, an important part of our culture. So I very much sort of decided at a young age, I think about 12 from memory, that I was going to do law and that I was going to go back to my community. So I go back to TI and to give back to the Torres Strait in some way. And so that was how I ended up at law school. And then in time, I ended up working at ATSIC, which was a really long time ago now, in native title. And then eventually I worked for the state government, which is where I came across the Kupara Muscare project as it was then within the state government. And that was about 15 years ago, I think. So that was really my first introduction to what is presently being considered by the current government. For the benefit of the many people who won't know, can you explain the concept of kupai amaske and what it entails? 
Kupai Ice Care, the term itself actually was the name of the working group that was formed by the Queensland Government uh, many years ago. And it's comprised of sort of two language words, one from the Western language, one from the Eastern language. It relates to the raising or the growing up of children. And it relates to a practice that we have all throughout the Torres Strait, but it does vary in terms of the practice from island to island. But essentially, it relates to the permanent adoption of children. And the way that it works is very different from, as we think about sort of what we call Western adoptions under our state legislation here in Queensland and other states, in that a family will give a child to what we call a receiving family, and the child is always given to somebody to whom they have a blood relationship. So the bloodline is a very important part of that underlying adoption that occurs. Adoptions can occur for a range of reasons. Of course, these are all embedded within our custom or within our laws, and they relate to, for example, there might be an infertile couple that may not be able to have children of their own, so they will be given a child. It might relate to the continuation of a bloodline in respect of land and obligations to land, and so a family may be given a boy child, for example, or it might relate to the tightening or the maintaining of bonds between particular families, and so a child might be given for that sort of important part of maintaining that particular relationship. What are the benefits of adoption from within the community? So look, adoption is is really important because as we all know, relationships really sort of are the fabric and of our communities as Indigenous people and particularly in the Torres Strait as well. And so the benefit of adoption is that it provides for a continuation of those relationships, the strengthening, maintaining of those relationships. And of course, it provides for a continuation of our culture as well. So there's important aspects that might relate, for example, obligations to elders and looking after elders, grandparents, obligations in respect of land and the care of land. All of those are part of the importance of the continuation of the adoption practice and provide key benefits to us culturally and for the maintenance of our culture and the relationships between each of us as kin as well. And from the perspective of children who would go through an adoption process, what have you observed in terms of why it's so important for children to be connected with their culture? Well, look, what I've observed is that as Torres Strait Islander people, you know, identity is very important to us and being raised in our identity and in our culture gives us strength as people and it gives us strength as individuals to know where we sit within a family, within a community, within a clan, as we have sort of clans in the Torres Strait. And so that kind of strength that comes through identity is a really important part of our well-being, knowing who we are and knowing where we fit within our families. And adoption and the responsibilities for the care of children all forms part of the strength that we gain as individuals from culture and knowing who we are within our culture and within our sort of cultural frame. From your perspective too, working in this area, why is it important that the government recognise this practice? Look, the reason it's important, I suppose, as you sort of mentioned, I as I've got 
my own personal stake in the recognition, but also I have been a practicing solicitor and then later on an academic and done research. And from all those different viewpoints, I've seen the distress and, you know, the harm and the humiliation that can come to families in the community because of the lack of recognition of the adoptions. And it's because of things like the inability of parents to change the birth certificates so that we're not able to give that important recognition that the biological parents are giving the child to the receiving parents and that the fact that that's not recognised really undermines the importance of that agreement and that adoption for us. I've also seen the challenges of teenagers or young adults trying to get driver's licences or passports and their birth certificate doesn't match the name that they are known by in the community and that they identify with. And so that really creates quite a bit of distress at that point. And then also as a solicitor as well and then doing research, I've seen that when a parent passes away, an adopted child doesn't have any rights that person dies intestate under our succession laws in Queensland. And so, again, it creates a whole lot of distress at a point when families are grieving and really don't need the additional drama that's involved with those legal barriers. And so it really affects not just the parents, but it affects the child as a child, but also as a young adult and then as a more grown adult as well. So the problem is enduring across a person's lifetime. There was an expectation that this would be formally recognised by the Queensland Government. What have been the reasons for the delay and what would you like to see going forward? There most certainly was an expectation. It was very openly announced as part of the election promises, if you like. I personally am not sure of what the delay is. I can imagine that this is a very complex piece of legislation. I was involved as a participant in the consultations and the sort of the legal roundtable and it was apparent to me and others and, of course, the wider community that there is a diversity of practices across the Torres Strait. So the challenge of reflecting that in a Queensland statute is perhaps part of the challenge. So I can imagine that might be something that has taken a little bit longer than was anticipated. But having said that, it is an issue that the government has been aware of for a long time. The courts have been aware of for a long time and have understood the complexities of this. And so because of that, there should be, I think, a very strong ability to address those issues and to produce something that hopefully can be introduced in this particular parliament. Finally tonight, and going back to a more personal note, we've been asking our guests on Speaking Out as we've gone through living with the impacts of coronavirus and everyone being locked down. So I was wondering if you could share with us what you've learnt about yourself during these extraordinary times. One of the things that has been wonderful is that because of technology, even though I can't travel to the Torres Strait and even though some of my family have been stuck in different places and Cairns and Brisbane or wherever that might be, we found a way to be creative and to continue our discussions as family and as community. And so I think that's something that has somewhat unexpected in terms of being isolated, but at the same time finding opportunities to break that isolation. So I think that's been sort of something that's been quite wonderful to find out that you can find a way around these challenges. 
Dr. Heron Lobin, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out tonight and sharing your insights with us. Thank you. Senior Lecturer at the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Sciences at Griffith University, Dr. Heron Lobin. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile three prominent First Nations women tackling visibility and representation in the media. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.